Now, where did I put it? Hmm. Ah, here it is. Welcome to the Toolbox. Tools for life and everything in between. Stuff you can use or toss, it's up to you. Hey everybody, thanks for uh, tuning in again. just want to give you a little precursor here and apologize for the lateness of this episode. I went camping with my family and I forgot to set this up to automatically upload. So here it is, episode 10. Uh, do be aware there's some clunking noises in it as I'm using a new microphone and I was picking up every time we picked up or put down our coffee cups. So I apologize for that, but uh, I hope you enjoy the episode. And I'm going to kick it off right now. Welcome back. This is episode 10 of uh, Tool for the Toolbox. I'm really excited to bring you this awesome person, great guest. I'm going to let him introduce himself. So, who are you and what is your military background? I am Master Warrant Officer Retired, Tim Turner. Uh, my call sign in my new civilian job is Gunny. Uh, so, my background, uh, I have a total of 31 years service. Uh, 23 years service with regular force. Uh, like a lot of career army guys, we all start in the reserves and get the bug. So yeah. I started in the Queen's Own Rifles in Canada in 1982. Back in the day. I was born in 82. So. <laughs> <laughs> Goddamn, I'm old. And uh, so I joined the Queen's Own. And what was kind of interesting about it was they were just about to get the jump tasking. And I knew from 12 years old. Some people just know this stuff. At 12, I knew I wanted to be a paratrooper. Yep. You know, it's just, that's what I'm going to do. So I was immediately hooked with this unit. And the cool thing was back in that day, I was only about halfway through our paperwork. So I really, truly wasn't in the army, yeah. but they held a adventure training and part of it was skydiving and I got to go. Awesome. So here I learned to skydive at 17 and then hooked. I've been jumping ever since, still jump today. And Eileen Vaughn was the civilian jump instructor for yeah. me. So the cool six degrees of separation of that is she ended up joining the Queen's Own. She was a world champion skydiver competing. And uh, so she realized, oh, wow, these Army guys, and it's only part-time. She joined the unit two years later as an admin officer clerk, okay. and then for the sole purpose of going to the Skyhawks. So she ended up being what I thought was originally was the first female in the Skyhawks, but after checking with our alumni, apparently there was one other. Okay. So I'm pretty sure she was one one, one or two. But it's kind of a cool small world That's that, awesome. that yeah. happened. So I ended up getting my jump course in 83. And then I was just addicted from there. And I just got call-outs with three commando. I was doing three to six-month call-outs with three commando. Yeah. And then doing a lot of tactical airlift exercises here in Edmonton when the jump school was here. All while that was happening, I pl applied for the regular force right away. But the, our system... Is terrible, and it took two years for a trained person jump course, the Moon Break course from yep. the Airborne Regiment. Still had to wait two years and go through all the training. Yep. Unlike today, where we can take you as you are and bring you straight into battalion, which I think is a far better streamlined system because yep. all the courses are the same, Reg Force or Reserve, particularly in the infantry. Yep. Uh, so from there, I ended up in the Patricias. And how I ended up in the Patricias was I didn't know about the PPCLI. I knew about the Queen's Own. I knew about the Royal Canadian Regiment regular force because I was, you know, Toronto East Side. Mm -hmm. But in 3 Commando, I uh, noticed the guys across the way. And I'm like, who are those guys? I'm like, well, that's 2 Commando. I'm like, well, what about them? Like, those guys are freaking awesome. I went, okay. So who are they? they well, they're PPCLI. Okay, that's who I want to join. When you're with 3 Commando and they're saying 2 Commando is better. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm gonna go over or maybe I was really shitty, and they're like, "We don't want you here. We want you in two commando." I don't yeah. know, yeah. but so I joined the Patricias um, for the sole purpose of going to the Airborne Regiment. Uh, got to the first battalion in Calgary. Um, spent six months there. Got posted to the Airborne right away as a trooper. Nice. Uh, so that worked out really well. Uh, as soon as I got to two commando, we went to Cyprus uh, with the Airborne Battle Group, uh, which was interesting. You know, everyone talks about Cyprus. You know. It's an easy go. Sure, it's an easy go, but there are the, the hazards. And the crazy thing that happened was the advance party that went ahead of us, one of the sections got held captured at Beaver Lodge by the Turks. So they actually had to send in the quick reaction force and do a breach, yeah. kinetic breach, and go and get those guys out. So that was on our way as we're flying uh, at the main body. So I'm like, oh, all right, this will be a cool, cool tour. <laughs> Let's get it on. All right. So... Really, after that, then, really not much happened. You know, we were just enforcing the peace, and uh, it was good old, old school army back in those days. Uh, so you could, you know, go out drinking your big boys. You know, when your shift is over, you can go out and have a beer, which is great. Yeah. So, of course, uh, we had uh, the 3rd Parachute Regiment over there, so we did exchanges with them, and a lot of fighting, which was good for morale. Good times, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so from there, once we got back to Canada, I... Uh, Managed to get my reconnaissance course with one RCR, and uh, then I got posted into, you get actually drafted into Pathfinder Platoon. They pick who they want in Pathfinders. So I'm going to Pathfinder Platoon, got my freefall course. Um, So that was in the freefall detachment. You know, it's just a a cool way of deploying. You know, it's another mode of transport, but it is another skill set. So it it was quite good. Um, Then I got my session commander course as a trooper. But unfortunately, being in the Airborne Regiment in those days, with the Patricias, you don't get promoted. So it took me two years to get. So I was going fast track. I'm a no hook trooper with free fall recce and a, and the old sergeant's course, yeah. the the full six A. Still had to wait. Got promoted to corporal. Then I got promoted to master corporal. So it's kind of um, frustrating when you're seeing the RCR guys all getting promoted and you're not, and they're less qualified. But that's just part of the army. And, you know, as a young guy, you're frustrated, but as you get older, you see that that catches up with you. That's you end up getting those pr- promotions. It's one of the hardest things. Uh, I got really bitter very quickly watching guys get promoted ahead of me that weren't qualified. And it, is, uh, it's, it is extremely frustrating, but you're right. Long term, you start to see those people who got quickly promoted or got promoted unqualified. They start to flounder. They need more training. Yes. Whereas if you are solid you know your shit, then you get the the later courses farther on. Yeah, Roger that. I mean, and that's a good thing. And um, but you got to also have not only your um your performance, but you got to have good leadership that's advocating for you. Absolutely right. Yeah, leadership uh, key. So I'm kind of sidebarring here into while I have that thought process. Um, you know, when we write PRs and all that good stuff, my my biggest frustration is when my mass corporals or sergeants are like, "Ah, it's PR system." And I always have to lecture him. I said, you know, you're a sergeant, yes, because you had the ability and you got the courses, but you're only a sergeant because your leadership wrote, took the time to write you up, right? So if you need to put that effort into your soldiers, yeah. right? And then when we go as the as a CQMS or the sergeant major and you go into the, the board and you're with the sergeant major and, you're, and uh, the OC, you need to advocate for your guys, and I was really surprised on some of the platoon warrants not stepping up for their guys. And I always got my way, which was good because maybe I was more forceful, but I was more passionate and I actually knew my guys. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of leaders that are like that, obviously. 
So anyways, sorry for the sidebar. Uh, so after was I in Pathfinder Platoon, uh, then I had the ability or the chance to try out for the Team Force Parachute Team Skyhawks, which was fantastic. That was a great time. Um, you learn so much. You, you know, you look at the civilian skydivers and they're amazing and they take years and years to get to that level um, of a, what we call in the civilian world, expedition jump rated in the Army's military demonstration parachutist. Um, so you're going there uh, with the minimum requirements, an A license civilian or military freefall. So I went to training camp with basically 48 freefalls under my belt, full equipment, flat, dumb, and happy, as we say, you just fall till you open. Uh, yeah, you've done left turns, right turns, some barrel rolls, back loops, all that good stuff, but not any relative flying where if someone, if you're flying with another guy, you need to match his relative right, uh, right. to stay together, right? Because you're different body weights. So for instance, how, how heavy are you? 220. <clears throat> so you're 220. I'm, I'm 200 right now. But I'm 200 in a tight package. Yeah. So you're 220. You're covering more air, more air resistance. Mm-hmm. So you're going to fly slower than me. So right. I have to learn to slow down, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have to learn to match my rate as well. So we're both working together. Right. I have to tighten up or you would have to expand. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you go to go to training camp on the Skyhawks, six weeks, five jumps a day every day, uh, Monday through Friday. And it's tiring, right? Because yeah. you're mental prep, physical, all that good stuff. But... The training is just fire hose, and the staff are amazing. We bring in these great civilian instructors on top of the military staff, and they bring you up to speed to get to that level. So, and then at the end, you get you know picked or selected to be on the on the team. So again, I'll date myself. That was 1990, and the interesting thing was Skyhawks were formed in '68, and this by the Airborne Regiment, yeah. and now it's a recruiting tool. So it's all trades, all. All elements. That year, it was all airborne regiments. The first time it was all airborne regiment guys since 1968. That's awesome. Yeah, so it was kind of neat, but had a lot of headbutting. So you got all these egos as opposed to having, you know, we got a free fall clerk and we got a, you know, combat engineer and we got an artillery guy. So you, you tend to accept all those guys, yeah. whereas we're all the same and we're just button heads, right? Yeah. It was still a good time, but it's just like the regiment, though, right? If you're surrounded by the same guys. Yeah. Everyone's gonna bump heads, but the moment you have multiple trades working together, I noticed this when I was working in Meaford as an instructor. I love Meaford. I, I did. That's where I went with Queen's Zone. I yeah. love that training area, and I think I love it because I never had to be there as a recruit. Mm. <laughs> as an instructor, it's great. Yeah. But uh, as a recruit, not so much. I made those guys pay for. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Underneath me. <clears throat> Especially up that hill on the way into oh, Meaford. Yes, they, uh, they had fun with that one. The but what I noticed was. I was working with RCR guys, I was working with artillery guys, I was working with other engineers, the, the clerks, the uh, supply troops, like everybody. We were all more than happy to help, more mm-hmm. than happy to look after. And I found that it actually boosted our own physical and mental well-being because we were always playing off each other, right? You can't, yeah. oh, that guy's just artillery, I can outrun him, or uh, we'll, we'll pound out 10 more push-ups because the engineer is the guy in charge right now, right? Yes. Like it's just, you always try to push each other a little bit. A little bit harder. Yeah. And that ties into the morale discipline with the camaraderie, right? It's all hand in hand. And that's what keeps you motivated. Yes. Right? And my hat's off to the got the support trades that do things like, you know, particularly combat engineers and infantry. Like, we go through a lot of hardship uh, in our training. Yeah. Right? And a lot of these other trades don't. Their hardest training is the uh, 
you know, the St. Jean uh, portion of their recruit course. And then yeah. they go to the trades training. And it's more like, hey, Tom, uh, you know, hey, give me a hand over here. Yeah. So, for instance, like my son, you know, when he did selection for Sartec, you know, he had a meteorologist on course and he made it through. So my – and they've had, they've had tier two guys on there who fail because yeah. it's a harder selection than, than the uh, JTS eight, eight yeah. days. This is 16 days of torture in, in winter. Yeah. And my hat's off to these guys, like a meteorologist. Like, come on, he did St. John, which was the hardest thing he could do. Yeah, exactly. Then he goes to his meteorologist trades training, which yeah. I'm sure is just an office job. It's in Kingston, too. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So, <laughs> and for that guy to go through the beasting and make it through, yeah. wow, that's that's amazing. You know, like uh, for combat arms guys, you know, yes, it's still challenging, but you've yeah. been exposed to that. You know, you go to bed at one and it's like, okay, we're, we're Valley Six. You know, they're coming in at three. Oh, yeah. So be prepared. Yeah. Yeah. We had uh, on my. My PLQ mod six, we were, this was back in 12, I think. Anyway, um, 90% of the course was like MPs, engineers, and rad ops. All of us were, had been overseas at least once, if not twice. And we were like ready, we were good to go. But there was a 10% of that group that was, there were a couple uh, clerks, a couple cooks, a couple people, like they'd never even heard orders since basic let alone having to write orders and right. uh, we had to bring them up to speed real fast and I'm, I'm glad we had so many guys that were experienced because mm. that was the only way we were bringing them back or completing it as a team right because man they were well behind what we were at like i was as a i was pre-promoted to master Corporal before i got there but i'd heard orders a thousand times i'd given orders a hundred times i like i had already done the job yeah so when I got there, I was ready for it, uh, which made it easy for me. But I then had to mentor people while teaching and learning and doing all this other stuff for the course. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's a tough. You gotta hats off to them because we were getting beasted, and you'd look around, and the other engineers would be sitting there like, "Oh yeah, doing pushups, yep. woohoo!" <laughs> yeah. And you could see the stress on their face and just the amount of uh, difficulty they were having, and they powered right through. So yeah, I. I... I feel bad for you guys in a way. Um, you artillery, um, you know, the combat, uh, combat arms trades that have to do the their leadership course with the other trades because you're not being challenged for your job. Whereas in the infantry, we're very lucky and it's, it's just an infantry course and you're just being beasted to the max. And, you know, everybody, <laughs> everybody wants to be infantry. You know, stolen valor is always airborne infantry. No one's like, I was a cook. Yeah. You know, yes, we need the support trades, yep. right? Roger that. But I have to say, <clears throat> the only real trade that comes close to infantry is combat engineers. That's why I love my engineers, yeah. right? We are in the same boat. Much and, right. um, you know, the real same level of um, discipline, uh, mission focus, like the artillery. They're, they're not, they don't need to do what we do. Not, I yeah, mean, unless you're like a foo fac or foo fac, like that. yeah, sure. that's the only thing that's close to it, right? Yeah. They'll they'll come and travel with us, yeah. Um, but they do a great job. They did a great job in Afghanistan. Yeah, you know. absolutely. Um, yeah, no doubt. It. What I actually said that on my PLQ, there was a infantry PLQ going on at the same time, and I was like, man, we should be on that course because yeah. the only thing that really stands us apart or separates us is that you guys carry the mortars, and like I'm. Carl G, uh, qualified for the Carl G, so I got no issues there. Qualified for all the machine guns, no issues there. So the only thing that is outside the realm in terms of what you learn on your Mod 6 to what I learn on my Mod 6 is like mortar uh, engagements and mm -hmm. how to set that up. 
But really, as an instructor, you could set your infantry guys, say, go set up the mortar team. Engineers, build them a pit. Go. Yeah. Right? Instead of separating us and doing land versus infantry. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, um, one of my favorite uh, things about the engineers when we're in Croatia in 94, um, we're dealing with a lot of stuff. We were having firefights and IEDs a whole bit. Nothing was reported back to Canada because we weren't really um, accepted by the public at that time. We yeah. weren't the flavor of the day. But my favorite thing was uh, we had just taken some rounds and uh, we're clearing the area. And I'm in my armored vehicle. And this engineer comes up and he's like, top, top, top. I'm like, yeah. He's like, you guys got any, uh, got any bombs? I'm like, no. So I get out with him and he goes over to an engineer call sign. He taps on their door and they had like this little hatch. And buddy opens the hatch about this much, about four inches. He's like, what do you need? He goes, you got any bombs? He's like, just a second. Closes the hatch. It was like a comedy sketch. Checks in and he opens up the hatch. goes, nope. Close it. Yeah. Then we carried on. So that was hilarious with the engineers. And they saved my life. Uh, we found this. Sorry, I'm jumping, kind of jumping around oh, here. Man. Um, we took over this area in Zemnet Crossing, and I was in charge of. So we had bot, or uh, Serbs on one side, Croats on the other. And I was in charge of this area where we would do body exchanges and prisoner of war exchanges. And yep. EU would come in and then referee this. Anyways, I found a company uh, infantry position with a headquarters right near us because I actually went patrolling and the Vandus didn't patrol at the time. So we found these guys right away. Day two out there. So they came out and there was, you know, mines everywhere. Like you see on the hard pack and there's trip wires and we're walking over them. And so we found these guys. I report them. I get back. And of course, you know, good infantry men always, you know, uh, change your timings. Don't be consistent. Fortunately, a, uh, an engineer 113, tracked 113, was rolling up the road I was patrolling on, and boom, they set off two PMA-2s, anti-personnel mines, that were laid for our next patrol. Nice. Right? So no casualties on those guys. Yeah. They're in this 113. So that was that was kind of nice. But anyways, um, so after the Skyhawks, that was great. Went back to Pathfinders, and then uh, then we uh, got, po- got posted back to 2 Commando to finish off my, my last year there. And that was kind of funny because, you know, I mean, skydiving, free-falling at 12,500 feet for eight months. My first day back at work as a pair of refresher. Next day, three-plane formation, full equipment, 800 feet. And I'm number two in the door. And I'm now looking at 800 feet from the door after jumping at 12,000 feet. And I'm like, holy shit. I could just step out and, you know, touch the ground. Yeah. So I had to get used back. I had to get back uh, into the uh, static line operations um, from free fall. So that was kind of kind of uh, comical because my first free fall, you're kind of looking down, going, "Holy shit, this is high!" Yeah. Now, uh, now it's the reverse. So finished my time in uh, commando. I uh, went back to First Battalion, Calgary. Um, those boys were in Cyprus, so I got attached to rear company company. Um, and that was a good time. We beasted the boys on PT, uh, got to learn everybody in the unit before the unit got back, yeah. all the people on the ground that were left behind. And then, uh, just continuously doing taskings into Wainwright, teaching various courses back to recce platoon. So recce's my, been my, my go-to throughout my career. You always have to go back to rifle company, uh, from Wainwright. I got po- sorry, from first time I got posted Wainwright to the battle school. And that was a fantastic posting. I finally had some family life. Mm-hmm. 
I actually got to raise my son, uh, so that was great. Um, and then I taught a couple of recruit courses, and then I just did all advanced stuff. So leadership, leadership, rappel master, arm combat instructor, sniper. Right. So I was just doing all that stuff. And from there, I went on my master sniper course in Gagetown. And uh, then my sniper partner, Sergeant Ben Click, he runs uh, CR64 Riflecraft here in Edmonton. Uh, we managed to go to the international sniper competition, 1997, and we ended up winning that. Um, you know, we beat the SAS, so it's it was pretty pretty awesome. No bigs, <laughs> but you no. Know, but I mean, but when you're talking about sniper competitions, Absolutely. it's literally, literally, you're winning by a point. Everybody is dialed in. So the loser of the competition, he's only a couple of points behind you. It's mm-hmm. just who made the least amount of mistakes, right? And good sniper communication and wind calling. So it just has to all come together. So it was. Uh, we we're pretty fortunate to do that. Um, which was really nice when we came back. There was a big sign in the base, you know, congratulations, sniper champions. It was nice to be acknowledged. You know, yeah. that's one thing that came for us is back in the day, you don't didn't never really got acknowledged for anything. And I find they're getting it's getting better. So the the funny thing about Wainwright and being the Western Area Master Sniper is I made that position. So that comes down to your morale and self discipline. So. We're in the battle school shacks, and I'm like looking at my partner Ben. I said, "Look at that room." He goes, "What about it?" I go, well, "What's it say?" He says, "Well, it says library." So yeah, Roger. But looking at it, it was just furniture, a furniture dump. Yeah. I'm like, let's clear this shit out, and we'll make this our office. So we cleared all that crap out. We hung up our stuff on the walls. I made up a sign, master sniper or sniper cell. Hung it up outside. Called up the SIG squadron and said, hey, can you uh, get us a phone number for this room and list it as the uh, Western Area Snipers? Yep. And it just happened. So we occupied by force. And the entire leadership team at the battle school were like, oh, oh, a sniper cell. I guess this is a thing. Yep. So we just made it happen. That's so that was awesome. Yeah. I tried to do that in the end of your regiment. With, uh, I tried to create a breacher cell. Mm. Uh, I really wanted to take the master breacher course down the States. And did the paperwork up, put the memo in, it got approved. I was like, fucking sweet, I'm going to go on my preacher course. And uh, it got kiboshed at the last second. Uh, I think it was about a week out, and they're like, oh, we don't have the funds to, to send you down there. And I was like, well, shit. Yeah. But I tried to build a cell because it's such a it's a skill set to be interested. Well, huge, huge. In the regiment. Like, you get yeah. it when you go on your fives course, you get it when you... <clears throat> start working with the uh, with the infantry directly. You start doing MOE and stuff, but it's a perishable skill, and it needs to be. Absolutely. You need that expertise, right? Yeah. And then you can, you know, you get to build the styles of explosives and how to uh, put down certain doors. You can actually start studying stuff and looking into it, and yeah. developing a training plan and actually creating a cell. My whole goal was to create uh, a breacher course, like the master breacher course down the states that we could just do up here. But uh, I got kibosh and I got thrown in the incel and <laughs> that. But well, I, I tell you, it's it's funny you say that because kind of something like similar happened, but I was successful. And uh, so because we made the sniper cell, then I made a uh, the first Western area sniper concentration. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like a competition, but not a competition. Yeah. So uh, a good way to get everybody and do some good collective advanced training. So then on that, 
Ben and I decide, hey, you know what? We should be doing competitions around North America. So we found some competitions in the States with the uh, Special Forces ODAs and uh, took that to the OC and the CO. They're like, yeah, Long's, you know, it's in budget, so make us up some budgets. So I did a three budgets, you know, most expensive, medium range, and low budget. And we were short of money that day. I'm like, well, we're going to get the, the lowest amount. Every single time I put it in, we got the top budget. So I'm like, why? Why? So I'm like, okay, I'm on to this. So I just kept doing that. I would do my 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 three budgets. And because I did the work, they go yes. So what did I find out from that? They just want you to do the work. So we we had the sniper shooting off the, you know, the range tower, uh, range 16 doing some angle shooting and then rappel off. So I brought that up and they're like, oh no, you can't do that. I'm like, well, why not? Well, range control won't let that happen. Okay. So I templated it, wrote my thing, took it to them. Yeah. They're like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's good to go. Go back to the OC. I'm like, yeah, it's, yeah, so this is going to go forward. Well, yeah, I don't think range, they, they bless it already. Oh, okay, well, we'll carry on. <laughs> so, you know, it just comes down to, they just want you to do the groundwork because I think they're so used to people, the great idea guys, yeah. but not executing the, the, the pre-planning. Yeah. Unfortunately, in the, the engineer regiment at the time, this was 09, 10, uh, we were concentrating so heavily on counter-IED and uh, EUD schools and all that stuff that I don't think the leadership at the time was recognizing the future battle space. Yeah. And they were just so focused on IEDs and this is what has to be done and everybody's got to be trained up on this. And uh, I just... It blew my mind because they take us out to Wainwright and they're like, okay, everybody, we're going to start prodding for mines. And I'm like, but I'm like, I get it. That's a skill set, but we could do that in Edmonton. Why the fuck are we out here? Yep. When, if we're already out here, we should be doing demo. We should be doing breaching. We should be doing um, cratering charges. Like we should be yeah. doing stuff that we can actually do. Um, but I found a lot of it was the, when the field engineers and the combat engineers came together, I think it was in the nineties. Um, it just, we had way too many tasks. We had, we had to be able to yes. bridge, we had yep. to be able to truck, we had to be able to boat, we had to be able to dive, we had to be able to bike. It was just And that's much. why it's important to have that sill. Yeah. And that's what I... Because you're I not, you're a jack of all, not master of none, right? Exactly. And what I, I actually, after I got, while well, I was in the intelligence cell, I had time to burn. And uh, I started developing what I was hoping to do was live breaching here on base. And... I templated it all. I was getting the explosive. Uh, it's really tricky with explosives because if you're going to be indoors, you need a lot of space. Right. And if you're going to be uh, outside, then you you know minor templates for breaching charge is at least a kilometer, which is uh-huh. here in Edmonton is almost impossible. Right? Yep. Um, so I did this whole setup. I researched all the different types of walls and the different types of doors and like what the maximum amount of breach we could do. Again, I had this whole package, brought it to the CO. Here you go, sir. This is what I want to do. And you're just like, nope. Did you ever think about, um, cause we, we train a lot with police forces in the sniper world. I Did you contact the, these guys? Cause I don't know if you know, but the EPS are the experts in hydro explosive. Yep. They actually invented it. I talked to the EPS tactical team. They were the ones that gave me the idea of building a spot on base because they don't have <clears throat> anywhere to practice except for um, condemned buildings or things that are being shut down. They can go practice on something that's going to be destroyed anyway, but they don't have anywhere that's 
a physical solid spot. Right. So when I talked to them and I put that in my plan was that the police will be able to come and use it and they will pay to come and use it. That's part of the budget, right? To pay mm-hmm. for doors and the replacement of the walls. So it's not all just on the Edmonton base. And it just, yeah, they off the corner, which is sad. I get it at the time too, because yeah. it was, you know, Afghanistan was still the major focus and, uh, it's just kind of sad that we didn't have the forethought because now I talked to my buddies, uh, who are still in the engineers and they're like, yeah, we're doing breaching, we're doing helicopter ops, we're doing air assault, we're doing like all the mm-hmm. infantry style stuff, but an engineer way. Yeah. No. And, uh, yeah, it should have been done 20 years ago. Oh, I know. <laughs> we're so slow to learn in our different organizations. And I think that comes down to the, your, your leadership at the top, right? Um, so again, so I'm kind of going all over, but I'll give you a Sartec, like my son's a Sartec now. Um, so during the war, Softcom approached SAR and said, we want you under our umbrella to bring under Softcom, which would have been fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course there was too many old school Cold War guys who had been out of the combat arms for 20 years at the time. And they're like, nope, we're Air Force. We don't want to be part of that. Yeah. Well, that would have doubled their budget. But that old school way of thinking. But now you have enough of the guys coming out of the war era that are now sergeants going to be warned soon. So they, you know, hopefully they get that opportunity because the SAR um, danger pay hasn't changed since 1974. Yeah, they did. They have the highest um, skill set uh, in the Canadian Forces mm-hmm. and they make the least amount of money compared to, say, if you're just a parachute rigger yeah. and your only job is to pack reserves and do maintenance in SOFCOM. You're making thirty thousand more than a Sartek who's doing jumping, diving, doing all the maintenance of all, all his stuff. Yeah. Medical, you name it, everything. And the, the currency levels. So they're not being paid for their worth. And that becomes that's the leadership, right? And that's that ties into yeah. the morale. Brings down the morale and the guys want to get out. It's absolutely I think you know, I saw that all the time in the regiment was <clears throat> we gave we came back from Afghanistan, we were like you know, war fighters were like, all right, what's up next? What's the next course? What's the next training level? What do, what do we need to do so we can get back over there and get the job done? And uh, unfortunately, a lot of leadership, again, was those Cold War guys. And they were like, well, we're going to go to Wainwright. We're going to go prod some Do the same shit. We're going to drive up the same roads. And we were just sitting there like, why? And then they, they, they would disband our squadron. So we'd get back and they'd be like, okay, you guys are and we They just send us to the wind, right? Nobody would stay together. All the skill sets and the SOPs and all the stuff that we built right out the window, and they'd have yep. to start fresh. On the yes, and you think with the lessons learned. So in Afghanistan, <clears throat> you know we had the lessons learned cell in Canada, and every two weeks they'd be coming out after from our after actions. They would improve ways to counter. Then we get back to Canada and we just throw it out the window. Yep. Right. So you know it kind of sucks that, and you don't that we don't learn our lessons at home, but we learned them overseas. Unfortunately, what I found was that because of that, we lost so many great guys. We did. You know, right after the war, or right after people get back from tour, and they'd start getting fucked around by the regiment, and they'd be like, I'm done. I'm out. And then yep. you're gone. And then we lose that entire skill set. We had a warrant who, <laughs> we were in Wainwright on the last uh, exercise, right before going on tour. All he wanted to do was go home to see the birth of his, I think, fourth child third or fourth child i can't remember which one but it was the the only one he'd been in country for 
<laughs> and he was like, I just want to go home and be there for the birth. I'll be back in like a week. Nope. You have to be qualified on this. You have to get you set up. And he was just like, VR. Yeah. And there goes my troop warrant that is yeah. totally qualified, totally done. It, all, and it was just it was unbelievable. And yeah, you got out of the army, right? at this gone. It's and frustrating. It's, it's painful. It's frustrating. But you're right. It is a leadership issue. And, uh, you know, it, it ties in, as you said, to morale, camaraderie, and the building blocks that make units strong. Yeah, cohesive. And it's, uh, it's painful to watch, especially if you can see it happen yeah. <laughs> on the outside. Big time. It's, it's painful. Okay, so your background, obviously, is extensive. <laughs> and we'd probably be here all day if we uh, were talking about Yeah, so I, from way right back to the battalion, battalion... Uh, I was recce platoon commander for a year. We had no officers, and I was recce platoon warrant. Then I went back to the rifle company uh, as a uh, CQMS, which is the next stage before you become sergeant major. Yeah. And so I deployed on a force protection uh, mission overseas uh, right after 9-11. We were supposed to go overseas, but our unit was scheduled for Bosnia. So our company was QRF, so we got deferred to the 2nd Battalion, got to support 3VP over there in the first go. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we're pissed off. Then... They bring in a company from all reserve company to take our spot. So go, sorry guys, a company. Not only did you miss Afghanistan, <laughs> now you're not going to Bosnia. So morale dropped. Yeah. Then we did went on this awesome adventure training, but that doesn't. Troops are warriors, and they want to go to war. Yep. So that was great, but that's not war. Then they found us an, another force protection duty overseas for us. So that was good. So we got that done. And then in 06, obviously we deployed to Afghanistan Task Force 106. I was in Charlie Company. There's a couple books on us. Um, uh, 15 days. Uh, Contact C. Uh, we were the maneuver company, so we're always out fighting. We're out two, three weeks at a time. Yeah. And unfortunately, <clears throat> I was uh, CQMS, but I was always out with the guys because uh, I'm like, I'm not missing this war because yeah. of this position. Yeah. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, I kind of screwed my master corporal over and he left him behind and went out the wire most of the time. But I got my two corporals out, and then the first mission I got my Corporal Gorman out. Uh, he got wounded uh, when we had five di- five guys killed that day at the white school. Yeah. And then I did the combat resupply for that. And I just had this feeling that he was one of them. And uh, sure enough, I see him, meet him at roll three, and I just start crying. He starts crying because my guys are my boys. Yeah. And I have ownership on these guys. I just felt so bad when they sent him out on this. But that's the side effect, and that's that's part of the, the, the mission, right? That's the job. Sure, and uh, and we all, and we all know that risk, yep. right? Um, so following Afghanistan, <clears throat> back to First uh, Battalion. Um, two months later, I get the RSM calls me up. And goes, hey, uh, can you deploy again to Afghanistan? I'm, like, I'm Sergeant Major Combat <laughs> Support, yeah. and I'm like, yes, yeah, absolutely. He goes, so he called me on Thursday, and he's like, you uh, you're flying Monday. So yeah, let me call the boss. Call my wife. She's like, absolutely, you're going. Yeah. yeah. Then he calls me back. Goes, yeah, your visa's expiring. You got to fly tomorrow to Ottawa. We'll get you a new passport, new visa, and then you fly Monday. So phone up the boss again. Hey, honey, flying tomorrow now. It's <laughs> yeah, like okay. So that was her favorite mission because there was no you know eight months of workup. It was like on a plane go, and it was a nice three month short stint. It was a sniper gig, um, um, teaching uh, special forces unit from one of our host countries. Uh, very rewarding. It was a good task. Um, and then from there back to first battalion. Then I had an opportunity to get on uh, an omelet, and then I got robbed. 
So the RSM posted me to to the Strathconus in charge of the anti-tank company. I've been a recon sniper my whole career. I'm not Ouch. even anti-tank qualified. Ouch. So of course, I've voiced my concern. He goes, well, you should be a sergeant major. You don't need to have... Yes, you do. Because what's the role of the sergeant major? Tactical advisor to the OC. So I go over there. That The guy I replace, he gets to go on the album. Painful. But none of his soldiers got to go overseas. And uh, I get there and morale is so low. I guy's crying going, thank God you're here. And I managed to get some of these guys out on some TAVs. Yeah. And we tried to get the toe on a TAV the, uh, and a dismounted roll so we could put them in the fobs. And because the the ITAS system is basically, we can see 20Ks with this thing. Mm-hmm. So it's basically a ground-mounted predator. So we presented this to uh, D&D and they said no because of General Leslie. They put close to $500 million on this project into this whole new tow system, and he went, nope, quash it. So we wasted all that money. So that was frustrating. So that's where, when you talk about earlier, about guys leaving. So I was earmarked to be RSM first time. That used to be a motivator. But I was so pissed off at the shitty leadership. So here I got this tow company. All these guys' morale are low. I put a couple guys in jail for smoking drugs. Had to be done. That's discipline. Yep, got to be done. And they accept it, and I made it a, turned into a positive. I known like a bunch of guys who went to DB mm-hmm. and ended up going to Tier One, ended up going to Sartex, and guys made warrant. So life's not over. So I coached the guys. Said this is a positive. It's going to get you on the right track. And they went to DB with a positive attitude. Not like oh, I'm a loser. Yeah. I've uh, let my guys down. So. Anyways, what made me finally decide, okay, you know what, I need to get out, is, again, we just finished fighting war. It's 08. Yeah. And I'm getting tasked with, we need you to send eight guys to Wainwright to do general duties. Now, okay, that's not beneath us, because that's our job. Yep. But you're, ta- you're asking me to task eight guys that are total qualified, that have been screwed over and haven't been deploying overseas while they're watching their guys on battalion deploy and i'm going to send them to wainwright as a senior leader what would be your better option we have the loyal edmonton regiment in town they would love a 2-8 tasking to go and do general duties how about we task those guys nope we got no 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 for the answer and i said well i'm not tasking them so you have to go to other units so i managed to quash it and after that i'm like you know what this is i'm done so i kind of regretted getting out but I made it happen. I got out over Christmas, so no one knew I left. Yeah. I only had two days off, and I started my sheriff, joined the Alberta Sheriff's. Of course, I, I linked all, applied for that four months prior because I was already planning, right? Yep. And uh, got out and started doing the sheriff gig, and the sheriff gig was great. And then I got to the advanced unit to sector protection. Now I'm bodyguarding the Premier of Alberta, and I'm on Premier number five. Well, you know, <clears throat> it's a it's a painful experience to watch guys with your qualifications and your skill set and your ability to lead and actually look forward in terms of military procurement and um, development. And this is one of the, my biggest gripes. You know, I slightly regret getting out when I did too. Yeah. Um, I was supposed to be the next sergeant in, in Meaford, the next engineer sergeant in Meaford. I was supposed to be, after that, I was going to go to Petawawa. Then I was, they were going to bump me up from there. But there's a point where you're just like, I can't do 
that yeah. anymore. I want to do the job. I want to be able to do what I train to do, but I can't do the BS and the, the politics and the paperwork that is just silly. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, our procurement system is garbage. Yeah. Our, uh, you know, some of the senior leaders, can't say all of them, but some of them, are so focused on keeping their job that they're not doing their job. Yes. And uh, you, know, you see it all the time where we get random taskings just because somebody needs to justify an expense for that year or something. I got sent on, I don't know how many exercises where the only reason we went on exercise was because we hadn't been on exercise yet. Yep. And I was like, what? Like, what's the plan? What's the objective? What is it we're actually doing? Yep. And they'd be like, yeah, we'll figure out when we get there. Yeah, like that's that not is, how you run training. No, and it it slowly erodes the morale in the unit. And, you know, I can't say how much, how important that is. Um, and unfortunately, from when I was working in the, um, or I should say fortunately, when I was working in the incel, I got to see the backroom stuff. Right. So I got to see ops and training. I got to see the the whiteboard with the calendar, right? Where it's just bars and bars of different taskings and so yeah. on and so forth. And we can never understand as privates and, you know, sappers and corporals. Everyone keeps saying how busy we are, but we're sitting in our troop bay doing fucking nothing. Mm-hmm. But at a regimental level, we were exceptionally busy. We had all kinds of taskings and all kinds of things happening all at once, but it was only for warrants and hire or sergeants and hire. So the junior guys were just sitting around doing fucking nothing. See, and that's and where morale just that's where the leadership is uh, important. So your leadership that's left behind has to make a good training plan to keep those guys occupied. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's just comes down to laziness and a bit of burnout, right? Like in the infantry, mass corporals and above are gone all the time. If you're not training for operations, everyone's tossed to the battle school. Yeah. It leaves nobody behind. Right. So there's gotta be a better system to keep those guys occupied. Hey, you know, that's one of the reasons why I started trying to build these cells and try to build these exactly. uh, projects because I was bored. <laughs> I just wanted to do something that was effective and, um, you know, based on what the skill set I had. And I was yep. looking at it from a combat engineer's concept, mm-hmm. right? I wasn't looking at it from, you know, I'm not heavy equipment. I'm not a diver. I'm not EOD. I am a combat engineer. What is my sole job? Live, move, and fight on the battlefield. So how do we do that? We got to be able to do explosives. We have to be able to do bridging, and we have to be able to do movement. Period. Yeah. Let's focus on those. So instead of dealing with mines, which is is still important, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not necessary to do prodding every six months. We know how to prod. Yeah. Um, it'd be like sending your infantry guys to do PWT one every three months. Yeah. You know, just it's silly at that point because you're just wasting ammunition to do nothing. Yeah. The guys already know. And uh, I found that that destroyed our morale. And once our morale started to drop, the group cohesion, the the comrade, we started to have little infights yep. and started to get clicky. And then it was like, these guys were only kind of hanging out with those dudes. And there was no competition anymore. There was no pushing each other. It was right. just... So bleh. the morale dropped, right? Which means discipline drops because mm-hmm. they're all interconnected. And then you lose your camaraderie. Yeah. Right. So how do you how do you build on that? Like if you have if you were to walk into uh, a company or a, a platoon or something like that, and they were just dead in the yeah. water, right? 
you have to give them ownership, right? So I'll give you an example. When I took over CQMS, uh, yeah, I get it. it has, I have to do this job uh, to be a certain major. And, you know, unfortunately, the CQMS is always in, I don't know, in your world, in the infantry world, you're like, ah, CQMS, you know. It's like, yep, those guys have it easy. <laughs> I never want to go there. So I never, and I'm bad for that. And I'll say that's my weakness is I don't um, put myself into something that I don't agree or not that I agree with. It's not, to me, it's not the fighting edge. Yeah. So I don't want anything to do with that. And uh, and my big pet peeve was, you know, when a new CQ came in, when it's a young troop, it's like, all right, come in. And, you know, everything's set up for the old CQ. And then we're going to move the jerry cans from this corner now because he wants the jerry cans in this corner. Yep. So I hate that. So I always like to, my leadership was always on, I don't like what that guy does, so I'm going to do the opposite. Just right down to the simplicity of, hey, guys, like, you know, sergeant comes over. Hey, guys, sees the whole group there and goes, come over here. I got something to tell you. How about you walk over there to the guys and go, hey, I got something to pass on. Yep. So anyway, so I took over the CQ and I hated the way that was done in the past. So I had a staff, a mass corporal, two corporals. So I sat them down and gave them ownership. I said, right, the, 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 the place was a shit show. There was stuff in there, like there was 25 millimeter cannons that were unaccounted for, mm-hmm. right? That I had, found, I found them. And even the, the RQMS is like, that's supposed to be off our DA. Like we sent that to Ottawa. I was like, well, it's in my freaking stores. Here, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so I said, all right, guys. I said, this is your stores. I'm going to, yeah, I run it. But it's, our, it's your stores. So we need to reorg this place. So I said, you're going to be in charge of serialized kit weapons. You're going to be in charge of all our other equipment. And then Alex, who's the mass corporal, you're going to be in charge of overall supervising these things. I want you guys, you have the two days to come up with a plan on how to reorg and configure this whole stores and a tracking system. And then you're going to present it to me. So that gives them the ownership and they get all excited and it's like, yeah, hey, I can do this with this and do this. So they present me their plans, mm-hmm. right? Of course, as the, the primary leader, I'm going to make adjustments. But overall, I don't make an, that many adjustments where I've taken away their power. And now that I have ownership and they've bought into being in CQ and I've gone, Ugh, I'm this, and now I'm a corporal in CQ, like my mm-hmm. life's over. It's like, no, they loved it, right? Because they had the ownership. I, uh, so that's what you got to do at all levels. You come into your troop or your platoon and you see this happen, give them ownership on stuff and give them tasks and then they own it and then they bought into it. Now their morale goes up. I, I can't agree more. It, um, it's so, it's, it's funny. It's, it's an opposite it's got a dichotomy here, but the more ownership you have in any plan, Boom. the more liberty you will take in executing that plan. Yep. And then you actually, your morale goes up because it's your plan. Whoop. And uh, it just, it's, it seems so silly to me to try and uh, micromanage and try and, you know, we're going to do it my way. Instead, just be like, you're down here every day. What's the best way to work with this? When I was, uh, <clears throat> when I got out of the incel, we were supposed to go on tour again. And I got taken off because, I don't know this 100%, but I'm pretty sure this, that uh, one of the sergeant majors and I had a bit of a disagreement. Yeah. <laughs> I was a corporal. I was correct, but he didn't like it, and I didn't say it very tactfully, so my name came off tour very quickly, <laughs> and it just happened to happen that way. Yeah. But uh, I got pushed into um, boat ops, and I became the boat ops command section commander. I was a corporal. I had fourteen guys underneath me, and I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> right. 
all right, let's see what happens. And so I reorged the, the whole building or the whole stores cage. We checked all the boats. We did all the inventory, made sure everything was good to go. And then uh, it was our area. Yeah. And when we, Mountain Ann came up, they were like, oh, we need boat ops to do water safety. And I was like, absolutely. Boom. We need training. So we need to be able to do all our boat, our boat drills. We need to be able to do flips. We need to build Swim boats. tests. Swim t- exactly. Everything needs to be covered. And I was like, Corporal so-and-so, you're going to help me. Private so-and-so, you're going to help him. We're going to come up with a plan. We actually took, I think it was about a week and a half, talked to the uh, <clears throat> the heavy lift guys in the regiment. They loaded our boats, took us down the river. We drove up and down that river for a week. So we actually knew what the currents were like. Awesome. We knew where the shallow spots were so we could avoid them. We didn't wreck too many motors, all that kind of stuff. And That's fantastic. But it was the development of that plan. Yep. That got everybody in on it. And it wasn't like, oh, God, I'm sitting in stores. It was, all right, boat ops, let's go. How are the motors? Do we need new props? Do we need new blah, 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 I'm not a water guy. <laughs> I don't like boats to begin with. Uh, I'm from the prairies. There's not a lot of water in the mountains. So Yeah, but when you take that over, you kind of you own it, so you want to develop it, right? Exactly. So now you start doing that stuff. And it sounds like that's what you did. So that brought, uh, you know, you know you, it's a combat multiplier. Absolutely, yeah. And the morale started going up, and we were doing really good work, and we were actually working with the divers, which was a lot of fun because they got to go out in the water into live water instead of just being in a pool. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I got directed to HMCS Nunsuch here in town. Oh, nice. I thought was actually someone was making it up. <laughs> yeah. No, a good bunch of guys there. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a great training area, too, like having the, the saltwater pool to work yep. in. And um, But when I first asked about it, they were like, yeah, I go see uh, Nunsuch. And I was like, is this like a box of grid squares kind of thing? <laughs> I just, you fuck with me here? Um, but we turned it into a really good spot to be. So when the guys were overseas, we actually had a nice spot and we were constantly working. They had a sergeant come back uh, from, I think it was his warrants course. He wasn't going to get promoted right, right away. And they put him in my position and I got put down to a 2IC. And then he just basically redid it all. Right. And morale immediately dropped because it was no longer ours. Exactly. And it's a, it's a painful experience, but you're right. The ownership is the, the key, key thing. Yep. Um, now you've been, you've been in the military for 23 years? 30, 30, 23 years of regs, 31 combined. 30 After combined. I retired and went to the sheriff's, I went to the lawyer, transferred into the loyal ladies. Yeah. A uh, good bunch of guys there. Oh, yeah. We had a bunch of them with us in 06. Uh, one of them was killed in action. Um, so, yeah, it was a good time. But, uh, you know, I could have been, you know, I don't want to paint the reserves with a bad light, but there's, you know, 40% of them are there for the social aspect alone. Yep. Um, so I could have been selfish and stayed in the unit and uh, just on the that side as the you know, NWO. Yeah. But I like to be in the field with my guys. And my executive protection job is eight days on, six off. And in those eight days, we're working 16 to 18 hour days, one meal a day. It's like being in recce platoon again. Yep. So I, on my six days off, I didn't want to go and do a weekend away with no sleep and then yep. go back into an eight-day shift of no sleep. Yeah. So I could have been selfish and said, you know what, I'm just going to stay in here just so I can do mess dinners and whatever. Yeah. But I'm like, I can't be in the field with my troops, so I have to leave this now. Yeah. So sense. I made that call. So – <clears throat> what's the biggest difference you've seen so far in terms of military camaraderie versus 
civilian camaraderie. Like you've been in the sheriffs for a while now, so yeah. So twelve years now in the sheriffs. Um, yeah, it's absolutely different. I mean, we really share hardship uh, in the military, so that camaraderie comes together within the sheriff's branch. You there is camaraderie, but in your different units. So overall, like with my unit, I don't get to see anybody else um, because we're operating at this level. And you're just with your teammates. So we have, I can't tell you the amount of troops we have, but when my team's on duty and I come off at a day, the other team's taken over and I don't see them. I just do, we do our relief in place. And then I don't, we don't get, we can't even go out for beers because they're working. So we can't get our whole teams together because of that. So you don't have that kind of camaraderie where you can get together and talk. You know, if we can bring some ad hoc, once you, we might bring some ad hoc guys in that we've trained. And uh, then we can have everybody off duty and, and do a night out. But uh, that's rare. We had it once. <laughs> right. So, so, but the camaraderie within my team is a different aspect. Even though it's a small team, we have that camaraderie because we are living hardships. Yep. You know, like you have a schedule and uh, <laughs> never look at the schedule. Wow, that schedule looks sweet this week. No, because <laughs> it's like, oh, we're in Edmonton this week. Great. And it's like, hey, uh, yeah, we need you to fly to, to Toronto in advance like two hours from now. Yep. So you go get your go bag, get on the plane. Yep. Bye-bye. <laughs> and it's not as simplistic as that either. Then we got to do our firearms paperwork. We've got to take our firearms with us mm-hmm. and then coordinate with our – because wherever we go, we have uh, pl- uh, police support from local. from whatever local yep. jurisdiction we're in. They'll be our driver. Yeah. Right? Like, and same thing with the, when the Americans come up. They're the state troopers do their security for the governors. We're their guys. Same thing when we go down there. Cause you, and it's an unwritten MOU because you don't want to be left in the lurch and it's, there's no bill back for the time. So, yeah, so that kind of hardship or you'll go out and you'll work 48 hours straight but no sleep. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, <it's>, <laughs> so with those hardships, that brings our camaraderie together massively and then it's just like you're in the Army, right? Remember, you, you know, with our camaraderie, what do we have? And our, you know, the esprit de corps, it's that brigade. Mm-hmm. My brigade's better than your brigade. Mm-hmm. Then it's down to your regiment. Mm-hmm. Then it's down to your battalion, mm-hmm. your company, your platoon, your section, your detachment. Yeah. Yeah. So right. it's at all levels because right. they all interconnect, yeah. right? Right. Platoon, we're better than the rifle company guys. Yeah. Eight platoons better than seven platoon. You know, one section, eight platoon is better than one section or two section, eight platoon. Yeah. So it goes on and that ties you into to everything right so yeah. you know i've always said the uh <clears throat> the key to building really uh really good long-lasting friendships is difficulty yes <clears throat> you have to go through difficulty together to really develop the ability to you know you have to I, share hardship absolutely when uh i've had a few civilian friends ask me you know What's the difference between a military friend versus a civilian friend? And I was like, I could call any one of my army friends mm. at three o'clock in the morning and say, bring a shovel and show up here. And no question, they would be there Yeah, with a shovel in hand. Well, the question would be, what kind of shovel do you want? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? exactly. Is it a spade or are we going to go? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but they would do it. No question. Yep. I'll be there. And it's the same with, uh, if you haven't seen a guy in eight years and you reconnect, it's like you've never been apart. Absolutely, yeah. Or you have that ability just to switch back in. Switch back in, yeah. And likewise, if you have a really good friend and you haven't talked to him in a while, we, we know it's not because I hate you. Yep. I'm too busy. Yep. And then when we do get together, it's like nothing ever happened. Yeah. You know, and that's the difference between the civilian side. Because the civilian side and most jobs, you're not really 
getting that hardship level. Not really, no. Right? And when I went to the, the sheriff's, you know, I had to be a normal ground pounder for the first four years. Mm-hmm. And they pushed the brotherhood. Hey, brother. But they don't really know what brotherhood actually is. Yeah. To them, it's a word and a handshake. Because we've gone through extreme experiences together, we know what brotherhood is. Yeah. Right? So I wouldn't say that they actually don't know brotherhood. Their brotherhood is a more watered-down version. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I think yeah. that's why we get along so well, like police and fire and EMS and military. Yeah. Like, we all, it's all the same boat. Yeah. But sometimes, you know, you're working down in the uh, in the boiler room and other guys are up in the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, the sheriff's. Like, we have our surveillance unit. Those guys are undercover all over the province. Um, chasing bad guys everywhere, and they're they're different than the meat potatoes, which is like the rifle company, which is the prisoner transport guys. Yeah. Right. You're you're holding down the courts, and you're moving prisoners all across Canada, like you're flying with them everywhere. So it's a different thing. And then with my exact protection unit, and then the highway patrol guys. Yeah. You know, like th- that's probably the most dangerous job. You never know what you're going to encounter when you approach a car. Absolutely. Right, and they do combined ops with all agencies, so they have to have that ability to link up and do the same thing. And, and all our training is similar. So for our active shooter training, our active shooter training is the exact same for every single police force in North America, and that was because of Columbine. Yeah. So we'll be able to show up at an active shooting scene. There could be an RCP guy, an EPS guy, a CPS guy, and a sheriff, and we all can go in that brick and know what to do. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So that builds that camaraderie right there. Yeah, I find, uh, especially police, because you're working, like, there's no real downtime, right? Like, when you're on shift, you're on shift, and it is all day long until you were done. Yep. And then even after you're done, you're just not quite on shift. It's very much like kinetic ops when we were overseas, right? Like, you're just, it's on, regardless. Yeah. Anything can happen at any point in time, no doubt. And uh, (laughs) there's no point where you can go, okay... And put your weapon down and be relaxed because nope. even in camp, even if you're in Kandahar, you know, yep. then the missiles start flying in. Yep. Like I was in Massengar for most of my tour, and man, we were getting rocketed every night. Yeah. And it was actually when I think there was three days where we didn't get rocketed in a row, and we were all like, "What's going on? What the heck is wrong with us? Yeah. <laughs> where are these guys?" Uh, oh my god. It, you know, it, it's so funny. Like with our company, like we're out all the time, and. Um, we're running, uh, we just took over the French Special Forces in Spin Baldac, and uh, we've got to run a convoy out there. And running a convoy is never, there is never an easy no. convoy. And I got my replacement in, and he's traveling with me in a G Wagon. We're moving G Wagons at the time before they finally said, Yeah, let's well, get vaporized. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Like, we had a couple of them get vaporized on my tour, and that's why they said, No more G Wagons, but I'm still stuck in this damn thing. Yep. So, anyways, we're running this convoy out. That was going to be, you know, just a Typical convoy note. So we encounter, you know, contact, and we have a uh, RG rollover. So my replacement gets to see everything in action. So mm-hmm. I just put him in the uh, on the machine gun. I got my corporal calling in the nine liner. I'm dealing with casualties, and uh, that was our day out. We get to spin. We download. Have a conflict with guys from the loyal eddies who uh, some asshole sergeant who's thinks he's higher up than the warrant officer from the Patricias and yeah. says, I'm like, hey, get your guys to help download all this kit. That's not our fucking job. It is now. <laughs> this says it's your fucking job. You're a team player. Let's yeah. go. 
And uh, anyway, so they, they finally did it. Off we do go. We get back to Kandahar super late. Uh, my, my two corporals and I were like, I don't feel like going to the kitchen and having just a freaking sandwich at, uh, you know, this late at night. So we drove down to the uh, boardwalk. You're probably familiar with that. There's oh, like yeah. Burger King and Pizza mm-hmm. Hut and all that bullshit. So we go for a burger. Yeah, it's really supposed to have the G-Wagon down there all configured with guns. But we're like, you know what? Whatever. I haven't eaten all day. Yeah. So we go down there, grab our, grab our Burger King. We're sitting there. All of a sudden, the missile's coming. Boom, boom. One lands 300 meters away from us. All the support staff, as you know, are in Kandahar. It's like 10,000 yeah. of them. Yeah. And uh, they, they, everyone just starts screaming and running like 12-year-old schoolgirls. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Off they go. So uh, it's like, okay, I'm like, Steve, let's go. We'll go to the bunker. We'll just, you know, grab our burgers, go to the bunker finally. And then it's taking forever. I'm like, fuck this. I go, let's go look for casualties. So me and him go and sweep for casualties. Some support warrants like, hey, get back in the bunker. Yeah. I'm like, got it. Yeah, hey, you know, I'm with the Patricias, dude. I'm checking for casualties. And uh, just override them. And so Steve and I are doing a circuit. Um no casualties. But I'm like, hey, Steve, look. He's like, what? I'm like, rocket attack pizza. The, the Danish guys dropped. They just ordered like oh, yeah. 12 extra large pizzas and they left them stacked there. Yeah. I'm like, well, if you're going to run away like a 12-year-old schoolgirl. So I grabbed them, put them in the G-Wagon, and drive them back to the bat tent where the rest of the troops are. I'm like, here you go, boys. Boom. You know? Nice. So, you know, it's kind of funny. So, yeah. again, that's where you got that camaraderie comes from. And then the morale goes up. It's like, holy shit, we just got free pizza. Free pizza, yeah. yeah. And the Danes lot learned a lesson. Don't run away. Don't run, yeah. Was, <laughs> I had actually uh, almost the exact same thing happening. I was in uh, Cap for, I think, uh, not even the night. We were supposed to spend the night and then we are going to head out the next day. And I was like, I'm going to get Timmy's. Fuck this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> run off to get myself coffee. And uh, I had my coffee and walked down the boardwalk. And we didn't even hear the rocket. Like, it was so far away. The, just the alarm started going off. <clears throat> and I hadn't been in cap for so long, I didn't even remember what it was. So it just like I could hear the siren, and I was like, oh, "I wonder what was happening." Oh well, and I just kept sauntering along, and I watched these two guys, two Brits, dive under a picnic table, and a couple of guys like running all across the uh, near the open space in the boardwalk. Where they the the officer were combat arms guys. No, and guys. they were like sprinting across the open, right? And I'm like, "That's not very smart, but cool, man." And I just kept walking with my yeah. coffee and. I uh, had some dude drive by in a Hilux, and I, all I heard was, you should be in a bunker. And I was like, yeah, okay, man. Cool. Yeah. I just sauntered away. I had no idea. I finally got back to my uh, the shack for the night, and the warrant's like, where the fuck have you been? Oh, my God. I'm like, I went to get coffee. Yeah. I told you I went to get coffee. Uh, and apparently a rocket had landed, like, in the airfield, like, on the opposite side of the base. And I was just like, yeah. I don't know, man. And again, I was in Massimville. Like, we were getting hit every night, and I'm, it was so nonchalant at that point. You're like, who cares? Like, yeah. no one's hurt. Yeah. Everyone's fine. We didn't even hear the explosion. Let it go, man. I love it. But, yeah, it's one of those things. So, civilian side now. Do you find, do you have any other ways to build uh, little groups? Like, I know everyone gets out and they join, like, a biker crew or they start either start or continue to do martial arts, they, you know, get in the government or get yeah. policing or whatever. Why do you think that we're so drawn to these groups Yeah. as soon as we get out? It's because you lose that. You leave that big organization where everyone's a team. And we are close-knit. Mm-hmm. So when you leave that, you're on your own. It's like, holy shit. So you're, 
you're you're wanting to be part of these groups. So, I mean, we have all the associations, right? The PCLI Association, the Airborne Regiment Association. So you join these. Because when you're in the Army, you know that nobody joins the association. Yeah. It's like, come on, guys, like, join. Like, you can't be just all old dudes. But when you get out, doesn't matter what age group you get out, guys join the PPCLA Association. And it's important. It keeps you in contact with all your guys. That's why Facebook's awesome. I mean, you, yeah. that's I just use it for staying in contact with my guys. And things like the bike groups. So I'm in the Veteran Paratroopers Motorcycle Club. Um, we're all super old because our rules are limiting. So we don't we allow jump company guys in and it's airborne regiment guys. So we're all old farts. This cup, this club's going to burn out soon because nope, nobody can join. Yep. <laughs> um, and then you have uh, you know regiment MC. You got the Veterans Canada. Um, I know I'm going to forget a lot. Cav. Uh, yeah. So they're all important, right? And they all have different levels of what they want to achieve, and they're all raising charities. So it's just a good way to get together with like-minded people. Likewise, I find that um, as an army guy going in the civilian world, again, you want to do a lot of what's related to the military. So for me, I've always been a skydiver, but that reminds me of the military. So for me, I skydive. Yeah. I love the smell of the plane and the sound and the wind and the smell of my parachute and the, the falling. I just love everything about it. And I also belong to an international airborne group, so I'll travel around the world and jump with different groups as a civilian. Mm -hmm. So I, in 2016, I was with the Cambodian Special Forces uh, jumping free fall and static land uh, in Cambodia. And the only people who jump in Cambodia is that unit. Yeah. There was no civilian jumping. So to get in that airspace was phenomenal. That's awesome. Right? And and in Thailand as well. Jump with the Royal Thai uh, Air Force paratroopers. And I'll have to tell you, their equipment was far more modern than Canada. Yeah, I don't doubt that. Their mock towers were all steel with ramp exits, door exits, multiple uh, mass mass exits. Yeah. Um, they have wind tunnels. We don't have wind tunnels. So, yeah. So you get to appreciate, you know, people think of Thailand... No, that's more. Thailand's more modern than Canada. Yeah, I don't doubt that. Anymore. But Cambodia is third world. Yeah. It, but uh, the guys are great, and I've built relationships with these guys. I'm still in touch with them. It's really good. Uh, I've gone to Germany to to jump uh, last, not last year, the year before, but we got stopped out due to weather. So then, hey, we hung out, and I'm was born in Australia. Mm -hmm. So one of the guys that was that I became friends with is uh, was is in the Australian two commando. And uh, he was a sergeant, took his commission, now he's a major, and he runs all the parachute training. And we hit it off. Our careers basically matched each other. Yeah. We're both short, stocky dudes. <laughs> and exactly matched our careers. So it was like, holy shit, we're literally brothers yeah. from different mother. Uh, so that was kind of cool. And uh, as well as combatives, I find uh, a lot of guys in combatives, like I said, to mixed martial arts uh, is very important because that's what we did in the Army. Yeah. Right? You know, I was an armed combat instructor in the Army, so... I like to do that stuff on my own. I don't train enough because I don't have the time. Yeah, I found jiu-jitsu was a big, uh, big huge for myself. I, I love it. And I think jiu-jitsu, and I wish I knew about jiu-jitsu when I was younger. It wasn't really the flavor of the day. Yeah. Um, you know, I did some kickboxing and uh, wrestling is what I did in high school. And, man, if I knew about jiu-jitsu, I would have done jiu-jitsu on top of that because, I mean, wrestling and jiu-jitsu are similar. Yeah. And before the MMA thing, I was always, always recommended boxing and wrestling. Yeah. Period. If you know those two things, those are actual fighting sports. You're good to go. You're good to go. Yeah. So, you know, uh, back to the Army. When we teach armed combat, you know, you have the guys' bios. And everyone's like, I'm a black belt in karate. I'm a blah, blah, blah. Well, then when we actually start to do sparring, the black belt karate guys always get their ass kicked by the boxers. Yeah. Because the boxers, when they train, actually hit each other. But the karate guys 
pull their punches. Yeah. Right? But now, you know, it's getting better, right? Everything's now live live fighting. Yeah. Um, and shooting. I think shooting is really important to keep up. I absolutely agree. Uh, you know, you had Mark Campbell on, mm-hmm. and uh, I was shooting with Mark a couple weeks ago, and my, my sniper partner, Ben, click. So that's important to just get rounds down range. Yeah. Um, it's just good for the soul. It really is. Uh, the, the something about the smell of cordite in the air. Yep. That just, like... The loud... The, yeah. I love the loud bangs and the combustion. Like, I shoot a 300 wind mag. I just love that mm-hmm. pull heavy, you know. You know, I, I shot the 6.5 Creedmoor. Um, I'll admit that it was very good. But, and joking, I always... Because, in the civilian world, because the, the American SF have gone to 6.5 Creedmoor, now it's the... Let's get the 6.5 because the American SF yeah. are using it. That, is that your fucking reason? Yeah. That's the, like, the sexy round. So I call it the, uh, you know, I have to grow a man bun and become non-binary and shoot 6.5. <laughs> um, but I'll stick with my 300 Win Mag. Yes, it's more expensive to shoot, but also I'm not shooting enough to the point where I'm going to go buy another gun. You know, I remember years ago, um, I think this was back in 06 or 07, and the Americans were talking about switching to a 6.8 round over the 5.56. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that is a great idea. You're getting more punchers. Mags don't need to change. Because uh, they fit in all the same mags, you just have less. Well, if you think about it, you could actually chamber uh, an assault rifle in six point five. Yeah, if you wanted to. Yeah, so it it makes sense, and I think the only reason they didn't do it was because they have like billions of stockpiled projects around. It just makes no sense yeah. to try and buy new stuff. But well, that brings us to the the gunfight of you know the old dogs like me were seven six two C ones. Yep. Yeah, you know that's a man's round. Okay, yeah, but I've been in battle. And it's about ammo. I can carry more 5.56 yep. than I can 7.62. Mm-hmm. And yes, it might take a few more rounds to hit the guy. But regardless, if I hit the guy a few times, he's going to bleed out. Yep. So I don't buy the 7.62. Yeah. You don't need 7.62 as an assault round. I think it works as like a DMR. If you have a, you know, a marksman, sure. one guy in your section that carries 7.62, cool. But it has to be on a precision long gun rifle. Yeah. But given an M14 or something that is you know useful... Uh, in a firefight at range. Yep. But there's, like, I was a C9 gunner over there as well with all my explosives and stuff. And I carried, uh, when I was out on patrol, I'd carry 1,200 rounds. Just because I'm a big guy, I can carry more. Mm-hmm. Cool. And uh, <clears throat> when we got when we got into it, I would drop a box right off the bat just because I, I had the extra ammo. Yep. Whereas the other C9 gunners were carrying six 900 rounds. I had that extra box. Yep. I had and an if, extra two boxes. And if you're, carrying, if you're running 7.62, you wouldn't be able to do that. Not even. You know, two or, yeah. one 220 round belt is 16 pounds. Yeah. It's insane. You know? That's why, you, you know, for the six gunners, you have the separate, you have uh, you have number two who's going to carry extra ammo. You're going to spread ammo right. throughout the platoon and throughout the section so that it's not one dude carrying the 30 pound gun plus yeah. the 18 pound uh, boxes of ammo and shit. Like, it's just, it's insane. But, um, I, I really love shooting too. I, I can't get enough. I actually built my own AR. Awesome. And the only thing I didn't do to put it together was I got an armor to put the brake and the barrel on. But mm-hmm. it, it's a beautiful rifle. Uh, Mark's actually shot it a couple times. It's got oh, good. The, the uh, Daniel Defense muzzle climb mitigator on it. Mm-hmm. Does not move. You can set the. It, but anybody outside of the person shooting, it's like a punch in the face. Yeah. Boom, boom. Yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, love it's it. So much fun to shoot. Oh but, yeah, uh, I'll have to take you out one day. We can awesome. Pound some rounds. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, we're over an hour here now, and I, I really want to thank you so much for being on here. Cause this yeah, no, I enjoyed it. Thank awesome. you. 
Uh, I'm going to have to get you back on here again because definitely. we have much more to talk about. Oh, definitely. Sure. I know. Holy, holy crap, we didn't yeah. even uh, break into our main topic here. Yeah, and an hour kind of disappeared really fast, but it's all good. Um, do you have any final points, anything to pass on to anybody that's listening? Well, I think if you're <clears throat> particularly a combat veteran that's uh, out of the Army right now, uh, you should seek these organizations, Bike Club, um, uh, Join MMA, Work out. Absolutely. Big one. Don't get out of the army and fall apart. Yeah, I Work that. out. <laughs> and you know what? You're going to have more time to work out. And you'll be able to pick what you want to do. Um, that's important. And get out there and go shooting. And you don't necessarily have to go buy guns. You can link up with uh, the different organizations out there, like Sierra 64 Rifle Craft, mm-hmm. uh, Rob Furlong's Marksmanship Training Academy, yep. Call Sign 66. Yep. Uh, all these guys are great, and they have weapons that uh, they can lend you. And you can take courses through these guys, and uh, no, it, it'd be good for your morale because everyone gets out and they're like, "I'm missing something," and they can't put their can't put their hand on it. And it's not; it's shooting, it's fighting, it's it's uh, being around the guys, yep. right? And that gives you that positivity and keeps you pushing forward, so you're not feeling lost because you will feel lost. Absolutely, yeah. I I can't agree more. To all the the guys that I've talked to over the years. Uh, in advocacy work has been, I, I tell people, you know, seek what you want. What is it What is it that you wanted while you were in the Army? You wanted to be a hard charger? Cool. Go take some long-range shooting. Go yep. take some uh, some MMA. Go take some jiu-jitsu or boxing, whatever, right? Get back into it. Yep. And uh, keep the mindset aggressive. Not angry, but like you want, I want something, go get it. Yeah. Put the fucking work in. Yep. Get it done. But by doing those things, it eliminates the anger if you have that. Yeah. Right? Because it keeps you focused. Yeah, exactly. If you're not focused, your mind's going to go other places. Oh, yeah. It gets dark real right? fast. Yeah. So, and then you have to surround yourself with positive people. Yeah. Yeah. There's Absolutely. so many negative people out there. Dump them. <laughs> yeah. Right? Absolutely. Uh, I've had to do that. It's like, yeah, I love you, buddy, but I tried my best, yeah. but I can't deal with this negativity. Yeah, and you know, so many guys get out and they're so angry and bitter and they don't know where to direct that anger, that the the pain that they're feeling. And sometimes you just have to just let it all go, man. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I started when I started listening to podcasts and started um, dealing with advocacy, it developed this, I started linking up with people who were really motivated and I started talking to people who were uh, doing really great things for the community and um Lots of charity work and just getting involved, yeah. and um, it it just totally changed my mindset from being oh the army screwed me and it was like no the no army didn't screw me you I screwed yourself myself yeah absolutely take responsibility yeah. ownership on that absolutely how much time do we have left uh, we got well much as we want really well <laughs> I just want to put uh, you know a shout out to you know these veteran groups that are um, making their small businesses. And that gives them the focus and drive, and it also connects the veterans. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got, uh, you know, you've ever heard of Bushwicky? Absolutely. I'm working with them on the Walk of Veterans. There you go. So, great guy. Um, you know, and he was the first guy I thought of, you know, during COVID, we're all locked down. I'm like, you know what? I need to support some businesses here. So, I contacted him, ordered some combat shirt and some good stuff. And um, it's important to support these guys. You've got Mad Hatter Industries in Ontario, uh, another group. I think you're tied into them as I am. well. Yep. Good bunch of guys. <laughs> Um, you have Jeff, uh, Alapa, uh, with his, uh, dangerous clothes. You got, uh, Chris Toombs, ex-airborne regiment fellow, uh, one step beyond photography. Yep. 
Uh, Andrew Gorman, my guy who got blown up uh, on the White House, uh, White School, sorry. Uh, he owns his own survey company out in Fort Mac. That's awesome. Right? And there's a guy that's that's where the military comes in mission focused. Yeah. You know, he took something he was passionate about, navigation, when it's surveying, it's all navigation. Yep. And he worked his way up. But he had that work ethic, that military work ethic, mm-hmm. that he went that one step higher. So he kept getting hired and hired and hired. And then he took that risk. Yep. Way He's way more braver than me. And he broke out of that company he was working for and made his own. Yeah. And now he's got icon surveys, and he hires veterans. That's awesome. He wants that same work ethic. Yeah. Just amazing. You know, it's the same with, uh, you know, like you mentioned um, Rob and his Marksmanship Academy. You know, you take something that you're really passionate about, and you can you can turn it into a business if you put the work, work in. in. It is all about the work. Right? Yep. You just got to pound it out. It's so, not going to just happen because you sit there and put a sign up. No, and, you know, once I got involved with the, the Walker Veterans and started doing advocacy work, and it... Uh, even with this podcast, you know, you have to, you have to develop what you're interested in yep. and then not only put the work in, but deal with your failures, deal with the, you know, you're going to screw up. You have to be able to move past it. You're yep. going to, uh, you're going to have some successes. You can't rely on those. You have to be able to work back and forth and say, you know, Hey, this is, uh, this works, this doesn't, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, is there any... As we close out here, if people want to follow you social media wise, how do they? Yeah, I'm on uh, Instagram. I'm uh, at Army Sergeant Major, so it's Army underscore Sergeant underscore Major, and uh, you can follow my shenanigans there with my skydiving, base jumping, motorcycling, shooting, uh, just all that all around stuff. But I just want to do a quick shout out to more um, veterans. We got Deathified, which is run by a three VP airborne guy. Um, he does uh, motorcycle gear, extreme sports stuff, all his t-shirts and Sweet. logos, really fantastic stuff. Um, you have uh, Trouble Victor. It's a group. Uh, have you ever heard of it? I have, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I encourage all the military guys listening to a business, join Trouble Victor because it's a, basically a networking group that will assist you with your um, businesses. Um, and we have Rob McNeil, who is a Pathfinder, Master Rigger, Combat Diver. He owns Skydive Campbell River on the island. Wicked. Um, great guy. Guy's hard as nails, man. And uh, you have Samuel LaForce. Uh, have you heard of him? Uh, in passing, I think. So, uh, Patricia, he's a outdoor fitter, outfitter. And oh, right, right, right. so he'll take you out. If you're not a hunter and you want to hunt, he will take you out on a proper hunt where you're packs yep. and living ad hoc. Wait. And he will show you how to skin it. And then you skin it. Wait. And you butcher it. So it's all hands-on hardcore stuff and he's out there doing that for the vets yeah, it's just amazing i've want to go out and do this with him but i never have the bloody time yeah. so um and then you have james cox at the shooting edge in calgary yeah uh great guy runs uh, all these advanced courses gives good deals to the vets and he's also advocating against this government uh for our weapons rights so he's taken that on and uh it's good to see that he's putting that fight in yeah it's uh that's a that's a, a topic for a whole other podcast, I think, on the, uh, the prohibition there. But yeah. it is what it is. You know, there's so many veterans organizations out there, and it's it's great to see everyone succeeding. Yeah. Uh, I found the trick, this is a difficult one for some people, is you cannot focus on other people's successes. You have to find your own success. And uh, I know a lot of guys, sometimes will get bitter because other people are succeeding. 
well, those people are succeeding because they're putting the fucking work in. Yeah. And that that is a pet peeve of mine. You should be excited about people succeeding. And I see that in the army. You know, it's like, oh, that guy, you know, he's on the sniper thing. It's like, yeah, because I took the risk. Only three people passed my my course. I took the risk of failing. So if you want to take that risk of failing, do it. So I I love watching guys succeed. I love people, my young troops that I've trained who surpass my courses, surpass my my achievements. Yeah. That means I did my job as a leader. Absolutely, yeah. 100%. Right? And it's the same with our kids. Yeah. My kid is a far better soldier than I am <laughs> and achieved way more. Mm-hmm. And you as a parent should make sure that your kids do achieve more than you have. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So the guys who are jealous about that stuff, they're weak-minded in my eyes and they don't have the drive. So instead of being jealous about someone's success, make your success. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, and I think that's a great uh, great spot to end it. So again, Indeed. thank you so much. That is fantastic. Well, great time talking. Airborne! <laughs> that concludes this episode of The Toolbox. I want to thank you for listening. I hope you were able to use some of the information that was offered. I want to thank all those putting it on the line for us every day. Military, veterans, first responders, and public servants. Keep up the good work. I look forward to bringing you more tools for your toolbox. And until next time, stay open, stay humble, and stay focused. Chimo.